Chapter thirty six of the Arabian Nights Entertainments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Arabian Nights Entertainments by Andrew Lang. Chapter thirty six The Enchanted Horse. Part one. It was the feast of the new year the oldest and most splendid of all the feasts in the kingdom of Persia, and the day had been spent by the king in the city of Shiraz, taking part in the magnificent spectacles prepared by his subjects to do honor to the festival. The sun was setting, and the monarch was about to give his court the signal to retire, when suddenly an Indian appeared before his throne, leading a horse richly harnessed, and looking in every respect exactly like a real one. Sire, said he, prostrating himself as he spoke, although I make my appearance so late before your highness, I can confidently assure you that none of the wonders you have seen during the day can be compared to this horse, if you will deign to cast your eyes upon him. I see nothing in it, replied the king, except a clever imitation of a real one, and any skilled workman might do as much. Sire, returned the Indian, it is not of his outward form that I would speak, but of the use that I can make of him. I have only to mount him, and to wish myself in some special place, and no matter how distant it may be, in a very few moments I shall find myself there. It is this, sire, that makes the horse so marvellous, and if your highness will allow me, you can prove it for yourself. The king of Persia, who was interested in everything out of the common, and had never before come across a horse with such qualities, bade the Indian mount the animal, and show what he could do. In an instant the man had vaulted on his back, and inquired where the monarch wished to send him. "'Do you see that mountain?' asked the king, pointing to a huge mass that towered into the sky about three leagues from Shiraz. "'Go and bring me the leaf of a palm that grows at the foot.' The words were hardly out of the king's mouth when the Indian turned a screw placed in the horse's neck, close to the saddle, and the animal bounded like lightning up into the air and was soon beyond the sight even of the sharpest eyes. In a quarter of an hour the Indian was seen returning, bearing in his hand the palm, and guiding his horse to the foot of the throne, he dismounted, and laid the leaf before the king. Now the monarch had no sooner proved the astonishing speed of which the horse was capable, than he longed to possess it himself. And indeed, so sure was he that the Indian would be quite ready to sell it, that he looked upon it as his own already. I never guessed from his mere outside how valuable an animal he was, he remarked to the Indian, and I am grateful to you for having shown me my error, said he. If you will sell it, name your own price. Sire, replied the Indian, I never doubted that a sovereign so wise and accomplished as your highness would do justice to my horse, when he once knew its power, and I even went so far as to think it probable that you might wish to possess it. Greatly as I prize it, I will yield it up to your highness on one condition. The horse was not constructed by me, but was given me by the inventor, in exchange for my only daughter, who made me take a solemn oath that I would never part with it, except for some object of equal value. Name anything you like, cried the monarch, interrupting him. My kingdom is large, and filled with fair cities. You have only to choose which you would prefer, to become its ruler to the end of your life. Sire! answered the Indian, to whom the proposal did not seem nearly so generous as it appeared to the king. I am most grateful to your highness for your princely offer, 
and beseech you not to be offended with me if I say that I can only deliver up my horse in exchange for the hand of the princess, your daughter. A shout of laughter burst from the courtiers as they heard these words, and Prince Farouz Shah, the heir apparent, was filled with anger at the Indian's presumption. The king, however, thought that it would not cost him much to part with the princess in order to gain such a delightful toy. And while he was hesitating as to his answer, the prince broke in. "'Sire,' he said, "'it is not possible that you can doubt for an instant what reply you should give to such an insolent bargain. Consider what you owe to yourself, and to the blood of your ancestors.' "'My son,' replied the king, "'you speak nobly, but you do not realize either the value of the horse.' or the fact that if I reject the proposal of the Indian, he will only make the same to some other monarch, and I should be filled with despair at the thought that any one but myself should own this seventh wonder of the world. Of course I do not say that I shall accept his conditions, and perhaps he may be brought to reason. But meanwhile I should like you to examine the horse, and with the owner's permission, to make trial of its powers. The Indian, who had overheard the king's speech, thought that he saw in it signs of yielding to his proposal, so he joyfully agreed to the monarch's wishes, and came forward to help the prince to mount the horse, and show him how to guide it. But before he had finished, the young man turned the screw, and was soon out of sight. They waited some time, expecting that every moment he might be seen returning in the distance, but at length the Indian grew frightened, and prostrating himself before the throne, he said to the king, "'Sire!' Your Highness must have noticed that the Prince, in his impatience, did not allow me to tell him what it was necessary to do in order to return to the place from which he started. I implore you not to punish me for what was not my fault, and not to visit on me any misfortune that may occur. But why? cried the King, in a burst of fear and anger. Why did you not call him back when you saw him disappearing? Sire, replied the Indian. The rapidity of his movements took me so by surprise that he was out of hearing before I recovered my speech. But we must hope that he will perceive and turn a second screw, which will have the effect of bringing the horse back to earth. But supposing he does, answered the king, what is to hinder the horse from descending straight into the sea, or dashing him to pieces on the rocks? Have no fears, your highness, said the Indian. The horse has the gift of passing overseas, and of carrying his rider wherever he wishes to go. "'Well, your head shall answer for it,' returned the monarch, "'and if in three months he is not safe back with me, or at any rate does not send me news of his safety, your life shall pay the penalty.' So saying, he ordered his guards to seize the Indian and throw him into prison. Meanwhile, Prince Farouz Shah had gone gaily up into the air, and for the space of an hour continued to ascend higher and higher till the very mountains were not distinguishable from the plains. Then he began to think it was time to come down, and took for granted that, in order to do this, it was only needful to turn the screw the reverse way. But to his surprise and horror, he found that, turn as he might, he did not make the smallest impression. He then remembered that he had never waited to ask how he was to get back to earth again, and understood the danger in which he stood. Luckily he did not lose his head, and set about examining the horse's neck with great care, till at last, to his intense joy, he discovered a tiny little peg, much smaller than the other, close to the right ear. This he turned, and found himself dropping to the earth, though more slowly than he had left it. It was now dark, and as the prince could see nothing, he was obliged, not without some feeling of disquiet, to allow the horse to direct his own course, 
and midnight was already past before Prince Firuz Shah again touched the ground, faint and weary from his long ride, and from the fact that he had eaten nothing since early morning. The first thing he did on dismounting was to try to find out where he was, and, as far as he could discover in the thick darkness, he found himself on the terraced roof of a huge palace, with a balustrade of marble running round. In one corner of the terrace stood a small door, opening on to a staircase which led down into the palace. Some people might have hesitated before exploring further, but not so the prince. I am doing no harm, he said, and whoever the owner may be, he will not touch me when he sees I am unarmed. And in dread of making a false step, he went cautiously down the staircase. On a landing he noticed an open door, beyond which was a faintly lighted hall. Before entering the prince paused and listened, but he heard nothing except the sound of men snoring. By the light of a lantern, suspended from the roof, he perceived a row of black guards sleeping, each with a naked sword lying by him, and he understood that the hall must form the ante-room to the chamber of some queen or princess. Standing quite still, Prince Firuz Shah looked about him, till his eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, and he noticed a bright light shining through a curtain in one corner. He then made his way softly towards it, and drawing aside its folds, passed into a magnificent chamber full of sleeping women, all lying on low couches, except one, who was on a sofa, and this one he knew must be the princess. Gently stealing up to the side of her bed, he looked at her, and saw that she was more beautiful than any woman he had ever beheld. But fascinated though he was, he was well aware of the danger of his position, as one cry of surprise would awake the guards and cause his certain death. So sinking quietly on his knees, he took hold of the sleeve of the princess and drew her arm lightly towards him. The princess opened her eyes, and seeing before her a handsome well-dressed man, she remained speechless with astonishment. This favorable moment was seized by the prince, who, bowing low while he knelt, thus addressed her. You behold, madame, a prince in distress, son to the king of Persia, who, owing to an adventure so strange that you will scarcely believe it, finds himself here, a suppliant for your protection. But yesterday I was in my father's court, engaged in the celebration of our most solemn festival. Today I am in an unknown land, in danger of my life. Now the princess, whose mercy Prince Firuz Shah implored, was the eldest daughter of the king of Bengal, who was enjoying rest and change in the palace her father had built her, at a little distance from the capital. She listened kindly to what he had to say, and then answered, Prince, be not uneasy. Hospitality and humanity are practiced as widely in Bengal as they are in Persia. The protection you ask will be given you by all. You have my word for it. And as the prince was about to thank her for her goodness, she added quickly, However great may be my curiosity to learn by what means you have traveled here so speedily, I know that you must be faint for want of food, so I shall give orders to my women to take you to one of my chambers, where you will be provided with supper, and left to repose. By this time the princess's attendants were all awake, and listening to the conversation. At a sign from their mistress they rose, dressed themselves hastily, and snatching up some of the tapers which lighted the room, conducted the prince to a large and lofty room, where two of the number prepared his bed, and the rest went down to the kitchen, from which they soon returned with all sorts of dishes. Then, showing him cupboards filled with dresses and linen, they quitted the room. 
During their absence the Princess of Bengal, who had been greatly struck by the beauty of the prince, tried in vain to go to sleep again. It was of no use. She felt broad awake, and when her women entered the room, she inquired eagerly if the prince had all he wanted, and what they thought of him. Madame, they replied, it is of course impossible for us to tell what impression this young man has made on you. For ourselves, we think you would be fortunate if the king your father should allow you to marry any one so amiable. Certainly there is no one in the court of Bengal who can be compared with him. These flattering observations were by no means displeasing to the princess. But as she did not wish to betray her own feelings, she merely said, You are all a set of chatterboxes. Go back to bed, and let me sleep. When she dressed the following morning, her maids noticed that, contrary to her usual habit, the princess was very particular about her toilette, and insisted on her hair being dressed two or three times over. For, she said to herself, if my appearance was not displeasing to the prince when he saw me in the condition I was, how much more will he be struck with me when he beholds me with all my charms? Then she placed in her hair the largest and most brilliant diamond she could find, with a necklace, bracelets, and girdle, all of precious stones, and over her shoulders her ladies put a robe of the richest stuff in all the Indies, that no one was allowed to wear except members of the royal family. When she was fully dressed according to her wishes, she sent to know if the Prince of Persia was awake and ready to receive her, as she desired to present herself before him. When the princess's messenger entered his room, Prince Farouz Shah was in the act of leaving it, to inquire if he might be allowed to pay his homage to her mistress, but on hearing the princess's wishes, he at once gave way. "'Her will is my law,' he said. "'I am only here to obey her orders.' In a few moments the princess herself appeared, and after the usual compliments had passed between them, the princess sat down on a sofa, and began to explain to the prince her reasons for not giving him an audience in her own apartments. "'Had I done so,' she said, we might have been interrupted at any hour by the chief of the eunuchs, who has the right to enter whenever it pleases him, whereas this is forbidden ground. I am all impatience to learn the wonderful accident which has procured the pleasure of your arrival, and that is why I have come to you here, where no one can intrude upon us. Begin, then, I entreat you, without delay. So the prince began at the beginning, and told all the story of the festival of Nedruz held yearly in Persia, and of the splendid spectacles celebrated in its honor. But when he came to the enchanted horse, the princess declared that she could never have imagined anything half so surprising. Well then, continued the prince, you can easily understand how the king, my father, who has a passion for all curious things, was seized with a violent desire to possess this horse, and asked the Indian what sum he would take for it. The man's answer was absolutely absurd, as you will agree, when I tell you that it was nothing less than the hand of the princess my sister. But though all the bystanders laughed and mocked, and I was beside myself with rage, I saw to my despair that my father could not make up his mind to treat the insolent proposal as it deserved. I tried to argue with him, but in vain. He only begged me to examine the horse with a view, as I quite understood, of making me more sensible of its value. To please my father I mounted the horse, and without waiting for any instructions from the Indian, turned the peg as I had seen him do. In an instant I was soaring upwards, much quicker than an arrow could fly, and I felt as if I must be getting so near the sky that I should soon hit my head against it. 
I could see nothing beneath me, and for some time was so confused that I did not even know in what direction I was traveling. At last, when it was growing dark, I found another screw, and on turning it the horse began slowly to sink towards the earth. I was forced to trust to chance, and to see what fate had in store, and it was already past midnight when I found myself on the roof of this palace. I crept down the little staircase and made directly for a light which I perceived through an open door. I peeped cautiously in and saw, as you will guess, the eunuchs lying asleep on the floor. I knew the risks I ran, but my need was so great that I paid no attention to them, and stole safely past your guards to the curtain which concealed your doorway. The rest, princess, you know, and it only remains for me to thank you for the kindness you have shown me, and to assure you of my gratitude. By the law of nations I am already your slave, and I have only my heart, that is my own, to offer you. But what am I saying? My own? Alas, madame, it was yours from the first moment I beheld you. The air with which he said these words could have left no doubt on the mind of the princess as to the effect of her charms, and the blush which mounted to her face only increased her beauty. Prince, returned she, as soon as her confusion permitted her to speak, you have given me the greatest pleasure, and I have followed you closely in all your adventures, and though you are positively sitting before me, I even trembled at your danger in the upper regions of the air. Let me say what a debt I owe to the chance that has led you to my house. You could have entered none which would have given you a warmer welcome. As to your being a slave, of course that is merely a joke, and my reception must itself have assured you that you are as free here as at your father's court. As to your heart, continued she in tones of encouragement, I am quite sure that must have been disposed of long ago, to some princess who is well worthy of it, and I could not think of being the cause of your unfaithfulness to her. Prince Farouz Shah was about to protest that there was no lady with any prior claims, but he was stopped by the entrance of one of the princess's attendants, who announced that dinner was served, and, after all, neither was sorry for the interruption. Dinner was laid in a magnificent apartment, and the table was covered with delicious fruits, while during the repast richly dressed girls sang softly and sweetly to stringed instruments. After the prince and princess had finished, they passed into a small room hung with blue and gold, looking out into a garden stocked with flowers and arbutus trees, quite different from any that were to be found in Persia. Princess, observed the young man, Till now I had always believed that Persia could boast finer palaces and more lovely gardens than any kingdom upon earth. But my eyes have been opened, and I begin to perceive that, wherever there is a great king, he will surround himself with buildings worthy of him. Prince, replied the Princess of Bengal, I have no idea what a Persia palace is like, so I am unable to make comparisons. I do not wish to depreciate my own palace, but I can assure you that it is very poor beside that of the king my father, as you will agree when you have been there to greet him, as I hope you will shortly do. Now the princess hoped that, by bringing about a meeting between the prince and her father, the king would be so struck with the young man's distinguished air and fine manners that he would offer him his daughter to wife. But the reply of the prince of Persia to her suggestion was not quite what she wished. Madame, he said, by taking advantage of your proposal to visit the palace of the King of Bengal, I should satisfy not merely my curiosity, but also the sentiments of respect with which I regard him. 
but princess i am persuaded that you will feel with me that i cannot possibly present myself before so great a sovereign without the attendance suitable to my rank he would think me an adventurer if that is all she answered you can get as many attendants here as you please there are plenty of persian merchants and as for money my treasury is always open to you take what you please prince Firuz shah guessed what prompted so much kindness on the part of the princess and was much touched by it still his passion which increased every moment did not make him forget his duty so he replied without hesitation i do not know princess how to express my gratitude for your obliging offer which i would accept at once if it were not for the recollection of all the uneasiness the king my father must be suffering on my account i should be unworthy indeed of all the love he showers upon me if i did not return to him at the first possible moment for while i am enjoying the society of the most amiable of all princesses he is i am quite convinced plunged in the deepest grief having lost all hope of seeing me again i am sure you will understand my position and will feel that to remain away one instant longer than necessary would not only be ungrateful on my part but perhaps even a crime for how do i know if my absence may not break his heart but continued the prince having obeyed the voice of my conscience i shall count the moments when with your gracious permission i may present myself before the king of bengal not as a wanderer but as a prince to implore the favor of your hand my father has always informed me that in my marriage i shall be left quite free but i am persuaded that i have only to describe your generosity for my wishes to become his own the princess of bengal was too reasonable not to accept the explanation offered by prince Firuz shah but she was much disturbed at his intention of departing at once for she feared that no sooner had he left her than the impression she had made on him would fade away so she made one more effort to keep him and after assuring him that she entirely approved of his anxiety to see his father begged him to give her a day or two more of his company. End of chapter 36